Well, Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Well, the writer of Hebrews directs those who are sanctified by the blood of Christ with these words that echo what we've just read. Through him, through Jesus, that let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And so we find the directions to believers and Hebrews rooted in the call to give thanks and to praise God here in Psalm 100. Psalm 100 is the conclusion, the closing psalm of a section in the Psalms exalting God and praising Him that the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. And so from Psalm 95 here to this climactic song of Psalm 100, we have this theme that the Lord reigns over all the earth. And so Psalm 100 brings us to the climax by calling us, calling God's people to give thanks and praise to God everywhere for all time. And it's not just a call to God's people, although certainly it's God's people who are rejoicing. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, all the earth. It's a call to give thanks and praise to God everywhere for all time. Giving thanks and praise to God is always God's will. There are certainly times when we wonder, what, what is God's will? Well, first, God's will is that we give thanks and praise to Him. It's a theme of Scripture. Paul says in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And also in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 20, he says, we're to be giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now certainly the explosion of praise and even the intensity of praise that, that we read here in Psalm 100 can for burdened souls, for those bearing uh, the heavy weight of sorrow, of sin, of grief, it can, it can almost sound like a clanging cymbal intensifying acute spiritual pain. So I don't feel like praising God like that right now. There's so many things pressing in on my life. But what we find as we look at praise and thanksgiving scripturally, and we'll see this as we unfold this passage, is that praise to God and thanksgiving to God is soothing to the soul. It's soothing to the soul. Our praise and our thanksgiving is a means where, whereby the focus moves from us to God, from now to then, from earth to heaven. Praise moves you toward the God of love, the God who loves you and who proclaimed his love in the cross of Christ when he set him forth while you were still a sinner to die for sin. I like the description that Augustine gives concerning the nature of true praise and thanksgiving. Never think that you will weary of praising him. Your songs of praise are like eating. The more you praise, the more strength you acquire, and the more delightful he becomes whom you are praising. So today, if we're not delighting in the Lord, 
Today, if we feel weak in the Lord, weak in faith, Augustine is encouraging us and challenging us that as we focus on praising God, of giving thanksgiving to God, that's exactly what we need. That is the sole strength that we need as we look to God, the God of love, and take delight in our great God. This is a psalm. This is a passage that strengthens our soul in the Lord. Let me note here this morning as we begin just a couple of structural items about this psalm. It's it's one of those passages of Scripture that no matter what way you turn it, it makes sense. It's like taking a gem and turning it and seeing the many different facets and being in awe every direction that you turn that stone. But very basically, the psalm divides into two sections, verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 and 5. And you have a call to praise in verses 1 and 2, followed by a cause in verse 3. And then again, a call to praise in verses 4, in verse 4, followed by a cause or a reason in verse 5. So again, just reading through it, the first call to praise, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing. The cause, verse three, know that the Lord, he is God, it is he who made us and we are his, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And then a second call, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, give thanks to him, bless his name followed by a cause, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. Another note about the language and the structure, this psalm contains seven commands. Seven commands or seven imperatives And we can just run our eyes down through and and see these. Make a joyful noise. Serve the Lord. Come into his presence. Know that the Lord, he is God. Enter his gates. Give thanks. Bless his name. And the central command, think of seven, three on either side, right? The central command is verse three, know Know that the Lord, He is God. And again, we'll come back and and see this uh, and the importance of it as we work through the passage, but what what we see by the structure is that praise and thanksgiving to God is is not something where we just generate a bunch of feel-good emotions. Central to praise and thanksgiving is that we know God. We know who he is. We know what he has done. And our praise grows and explodes, if you will, from a knowledge of who God is and reflecting on his greatness and his majesty. And so this psalm twice calls for praise and twice gives the cause. And one final note before we move on. In verse 1, the first statement, the psalmist says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. So there's a a call for, for people to praise God everywhere, all the earth. And then in the last statement of the psalm in verse five, his faithfulness, his faithfulness endures to all generations. So this psalm is, is bookended by a call for praise to God everywhere, all the earth for all time because his faithfulness is to all generations. And so the theme that we'll consider this morning from this psalm is this psalm tells us to give thanks and praise to God everywhere for all time. Give praise and thanks to God everywhere for all time. We'll look at three considerations this morning. First of all, let's notice and consider the nature of thanksgiving. If we're to give praise and thanks to God everywhere for all time, 
What does this look like? What is the nature of praise and thanksgiving that the psalmist is calling us to offer up to God? The nature of thanksgiving. Well, the first thing to notice is that thanksgiving is an obligation. Thanksgiving is an obligation. Now, that sounds perhaps a bit strange, a bit odd to our ears. We don't typically think about thanksgiving and praise as as something I'm obligated to do. More we think about it in terms of being optional, but it's not. It's an it's an obligation and and we see this as the, the psalmist says, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. And just again considering the context of what Psalm one hundred is. Psalm one hundred is the climax of multiple Psalms that have established that the Lord reigns over everything and everyone. He made everything and he made everyone. He reigns and so make a joyful noise. Shout, uh, make a shout of acclamation to the Lord, the one who reigns, the one who made you all the earth. Psalm 99 verse one, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. Thanksgiving and praise to God is is not something that's optional. It is an obligation. It's a moral obligation. It's a moral obligation. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Recall the general structure of Romans that chapters 1 through 11, Paul clarifies and sets forth the great tenets of the gospel. And then in chapter 12 and on is our response to the gospel, structuring our lives according to what God has done. But I brought us here to chapter 1 and verse 18. Paul begins his explanation of the gospel by expressing how God is postured toward sin and toward unrighteousness, toward man who is unrighteous. And and this is how he starts in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So Paul's right there. God's wrath, God's wrath is manifested from heaven against what? Against ungodliness and unrighteousness. And the unrighteousness, the unrighteous things that people are doing that reveal the unrighteousness of their of their soul and of their life or their heart is that they suppress the truth. They, they intentionally push the truth down. Right? This is the indictment of all mankind. This is what we do naturally because of the imputed guilt of Adam. We push the truth down. And, and the implication that Paul's going to fill out is that the truth can be seen. And man is intentional in his pushing aside of the truth, suppressing the truth. Verse 19, he's going to explain now. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Paul's point is is very simple here. Man suppresses the truth. Well, how do they know what the truth is? Because God showed it to them through the creation of the world. You can't look at the world and ignore a creator. And for two weeks, we've been learning about that reality, haven't we? You can't look at the world and ignore a creator, but that's exactly what man does. They're irrational. They're insane in their suppression of the truth. All mankind, and maybe it's our, it's not there, it's our. That's how we are apart from Christ. So going on, 
God has made this clear through creation. Verse 21, look how he expresses the first indictment. Generally, man is unrighteous because they suppress the truth. Well, what does that look like? What does that look like? Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or what? Give thanks to him. They did not give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And from that point on, there's a downward spiral to society. And we think about unrighteousness, we think about sin oftentimes in terms of the end of Romans 1, all of the heinous acts of wickedness in society. And and that is sinful and they are heinous and it's horrible. But Paul begins and points out that that doesn't happen accidentally. It happens because people don't give thanks to God. They don't honor God. That's the starting place. That's the point of suppressing the truth. And Paul says God's wrath, God's wrath is manifested because of that unrighteousness, because people don't give thanks to God. And so again, as we go back to Psalm 100 and think of the nature of thanksgiving, we're just simply substantiating the argument that this is a moral obligation in God's eyes. If we are not giving thanks to God, if we're not praising God for who he is and what he has done, we are indicted as unrighteous people. That's what unrighteous people do. They don't give praise to God. They don't shout out an acknowledgement that God is God, that he is king, that he is the maker of all things. So who is it that does ultimately shout out, even though this is a, a invitation, a declaration to all people, what we find as we would go through Romans, for example, is that justified people are the people that give thanks to God. Remember, it's unrighteous people that suppress the truth and don't give thanks. And those who are justified are those who have been declared righteous. Those who in Christ are declared righteous. And and so those who are now new creatures in Christ, those who who have responded to the love of God preached from the pulpit of the cross, when they recognize from Romans 1, God has indicted me as unrighteous, and yes, I agree, my entire life is not a life of giving thanks and praise to God. My entire life is about me and not about God, and and the conviction of sin comes crashing down and, and undoes them before a holy God as Paul was undone on the road to Damascus, and They're brought to the foot of the cross. They're brought to the foot of the cross where Christ died for sin. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we recognize that despite our rebellion, despite our unrighteousness, not, not just in the heinous things that we have thought and done, but, but in, in our very lifestyle of living independent of God, of not honoring God, of not giving thanks to God, of not, give, of not praising God, that Christ's death is redemption from all those sins. And all of our guilt is gone. Because Christ died in our place. He took upon himself the penalty that we deserved. And so this psalm immediately confronts you about your standing before God. Or do you recognize that God made the world and therefore you must glorify him and give him thanks? When when the psalmist says, It is he who made us, we are his, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. 
Right? It's, it's a point of conviction. If whoever makes something owns that thing, and God made you, and so he owns you, and, and everything that you enjoy, the ground that you stand on, the air that you breathe, the, the, the nutrients that you take in, it's all God's. It's all God's. And yet, apart from his redeeming work, we take all of his benefits, all of the things that he gives to us, and we use them, we use them for ourselves in rebellion against him. And, you know, ah, just thinking about the patience of God to us. When I sin, I'm sinning standing on God's ground. Right? When, I, when, when unkind, unwholesome words come out of my mouth, I'm, I'm breathing them out with the breath that God gave to me. And how convicting that indictment of the Lord back in Genesis that we read of, you know, man, our thoughts are just evil from our youth. That, that's how we function. And yet in Christ, when we turn to Christ, the guilt is gone and we're received. We're received before God. This is an obligation. And as we thank God for what He does, it leads us into praise for who He is. So we've seen that the nature of thanksgiving is an obligation. And, and again, I, it's, it's so important for us to stress that thanksgiving, true thanksgiving and praise, as, as described in Scripture, it's not something that, that we can just you know, turn a switch and do. It, it's out of a changed nature, a nature that's been changed by God through Christ. It's offered by those who are in Jesus Christ. And I want to say that because I, I just want to, it's, it's so important to protect the idea that, that someone could come and, and we could sing the songs that we sang this morning because, because we're mouthing the words, because we're hearing the word of God being read and preached and, and singing words that are truth about God, that, that that is praise in and of itself. No, it, it's not. It's not unless it's coming from a heart that's been made new in Jesus Christ. It's an obligation, but let's move on and, and notice that the nature of thanksgiving is also a decision. It is a decision. And, and this is obvious by the seven imperatives that we have. Make a joyful noise, serve the Lord, come, know, enter, give, bless his name. God is giving us glorious commands. And, and, you know, when we think of commands immediately, we're, we're like a two-year-old that says, oh, no, somebody's telling me what to do. No way I'm going to do it. Right? That's our, that's our nature. Oh, but commands from God, they're glorious, they're wonderful, they're liberating, they're good because he is good. They are commands to be obeyed. They are, they are objective and, and the importance of this when it, when it comes to praising God, when we think about praise as a decision, as a choice, responding to the commands that God has given to us, it frees us, it frees us from the notion that praise is entirely an emotional thing. Now, as we'll see as we move on, praise engages the entire being. Certainly, and that includes, and that includes our emotions. But, but praising God is not dependent on creating a mood. It's not, it's not dependent on being in a certain place and, and having certain subjective feelings. And the seven commands in this psalm cut right across the grain of, of any ministry philosophy that tries to generate praise by creating a mood and by stirring up people's emotions and all of that nonsense. 
No, you, you praise God. This is a matter of obedience. This is a matter of responding to who God is and, and of responding to the revelation where God says, this is who I am. I am the Lord of heaven and earth. I reign. I made the mountains. I control the sea. I control all the planets. Praise me because this is who I am. Know that the Lord, he, he is God. And so you know what? You don't have to wait to Sunday morning to praise God. You don't have to wait to Sunday morning to give thanksgiving to God. It's not a Sunday, Tuesday thing. It's an all-the-time thing. It's an all-the-time response to the Lord because he never changes. If you want to put it in this way, as, as the psalm moves on and gives us the reasons for praise, for example, verse three, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. And verse five, for the Lord is good. So how long should I praise God? Well, praise God as long as he is God. And praise God as long as he is good. When God stops being good, you're free to stop praising him. And I speak as a fool because it'll never happen. And so as long as God is God and as long as God is good, praise God. Now, that perhaps raises a question, how do I... How do I praise God when I don't feel like it? Because the reality is there are times when we don't feel like it. We are, we are still saddled by our flesh. We are still undone when we recognize our sinfulness to the Lord. And how do we praise God? How do we give thanks to God when we don't feel like it? And if you go back to Psalm 98, verse 1, the psalmist there writes, Again, just acknowledging who God is and, and all that he has done. The psalmist writes there, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. And, and I just bring us to that passage to make this point, to answer the question, if I'm not feeling the feels to praise God, to give thanks to God, and, and it's a decision, I'm called to respond to God's commands. How do I do that? Well, the psalmist gives us some direction. Look, look at what God has done. He has done marvelous things. And, and you can go through the Psalms, Psalm 105 and 106 is an example, Psalm 105, 106 and 7, just kind of pulling that out randomly, where you where you have these long psalms that list the works of God and the faithfulness to his covenant, how he's delivered his people, how he's been faithful to his covenants. And so when when we're called to praise God, when we don't feel like praising God, it's a matter of, of in obedience, taking God's truth taking the revelation of who God is and what he has done and thinking about the works of God. In the second part of that verse in Psalm 98, his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. And even in those times when we're melancholy and downcast because of our sin, some of the sweetest times of praise and thanksgiving grow out of seasons of repentance. Going before the Lord, repenting of your sins. One, I, I don't remember what Puritan said this, but he described his practice of repentance, of repenting for sins particularly that led him to a repentance for his sinfulness. In other words, there, he, as, he, as he looked at his life in the flesh, he realized how sinful he was and, 
and went to the depths of sinfulness, but, but then it's at the depths of our sinfulness that we give thanks to the work for God, to God for the work of redemption that he has done in Christ. And we go from the depths of despair and depression because of who we are in our flesh as we await the glorification of, of ourselves before the Lord. We, we go from those depths to the heights of praise and joy because of the redemption of Jesus Christ and the fullness of his work. One of my favorite verses, well, you know, favorite verses, that's relative when it comes to Scripture. But 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter writes, it's very simple. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Think about that. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Doesn't that sound wonderful to have grace and peace multiplied to you? And then he goes on, in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how, how is it that I stir my soul to praise and thanksgiving? How do I obey God's plan to give thanks always for everything in Christ Jesus Well, I keep looking to the Lord. I keep growing in the knowledge of my God and of my Savior, Jesus Christ. And grace and peace are multiplied in abundance from the the infinite hand of my God. It's a decision. And so we, we get, as those who are redeemed, as those who love God, we get to obey God and to praise Him Because he is good and we know that anything he tells us to do, anything he commands us to do, it's for our good. It is difficult, I will say, it is difficult to praise God if we're not living an obedient lifestyle, isn't it? If we're hiding sin, if we're hardened and not responding in repentance to Christ, for not pursuing holiness. No, you, you will not be able to praise God. But it's in Christ and it's in the invitation to come and confess our sins, knowing that he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that we go to him again and again and again so that we can do what is good in praising our God. Well, we've seen that praise, the nature of praise, it's an obligation. It is a decision But it's also a lifestyle, a lifestyle. Thanksgiving and praise constitute the fabric of the life for the people of God. One commentator says, when the community praises, it submits and reorders its life. It is not only a moment of worship, but also an embrace of a doxological life, which is organized differently than a self-grounded life. We come, to, we come and praise God corporately out of our commitment to thank and praise God personally. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Be imitators of me, he goes on to say, as I am of Christ. And what we read this morning at the beginning from Hebrews, you have a a link of verbal praise, the sacrifice of praise to serving others, a sacrifice of service. Praise is a lifestyle. And the first two statements of this psalm, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth, serve the Lord with gladness, span the breadth of life. There's a verbal response to God, a declaration, a shout out that he is God, a a recognition of the triumphant king, the, the reigning king of all of the earth. And then because that is who he is, he is the Lord who reigns, we serve him. We serve the Lord with gladness. So we come to a, a critical point of application as we think about this, grasping Grasping the connection of praise being a lifestyle, being, being a whole life moving toward God, it's what breathes life and vigor into the church of Jesus Christ. As 
As we spend our lives serving our king in our service and our love for one another, that is a declaration that the Lord reigns. And, and so as we interact through the week, as we carry one another's burdens, as we encourage one another in Christ, as we exhort one another to love and to good works, we're declaring that God reigns and this is how he has designed the body to work. As we personally respond to God in obedience and carry out the obligations of those who have been made new in Christ, we are declaring that God reigns, that he is the king. And so then when we gather together, we're verbal what we believe and what we seek out to live. The songs that we've, that we've already sung this morning are, are verbal commitments and verbal confirmations of, of what we believe to be true about God and, and it's our verbal edification to one another to, yes, keep believing this and keep living according to these realities. And so when we gather When we gather, we're not just worshiping when we gather. It's the corporate expression of our lives of worship. I know Pastor Don has said this many times that you can tell so much about a church by listening to it singing. Because it's possible to gather and to sing and think, okay, We've done our worship. We've done our thanksgiving. What's next in life now? What do I get to do? But a vibrant body of believers unites in spirit-filled praise out of lives that are submitted to the Word of God and submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when when we gather as we're doing this morning, as we've done this morning, It's not something to take for granted when we hear the joyful praise, the joyful noise that fills this room weekly from hearts that have been transformed, from hearts that are engaged in worshiping Christ throughout the week. And on the flip side of that, on the flip side of that, what what a motivation this is as we think about serving Christ constructing our thinking and and constructing our affections according to Jesus Christ, what, what a motivation it is to, by God's grace, flee youthful desires of the flesh. What a motivation it is to to turn away from self-centered and self-indulgent living during the week that we not stifle the exuberant praise when we gather together. And we could say it in these terms when we come for our corporate worship because, again, the nature of praise is that it's a lifestyle. When we come for our corporate worship, everyone, everyone contributes to worship. Everyone prepares by the lives that they're living and by their repentance and by their commitment to the king. And and we come together and we're contributing to the corporate worship of the body. Just want to make a, a statement here. You know, we are, we are blessed with many gifted and talented musicians in our church. And you probably wouldn't know who they are. From time to time, we have wonderful times of, of special ensembles and special music. But, but week to week, the focus is on the congregation offering praise to God. And it's just a blessing to know that, that those who have those musical gifts, that they're so committed, and it's a, it's a mark of the blessing of God, it's a mark of humility, it's a mark of grace on their lives, that they're so committed to the corporate emphasis of worship. <laughs> what a joy that is, that they're committed to making a joyful noise to the Lord. The focus of vocal praise in the church is that the congregation is voicing their love for God out of lives that are dominated by serving their king. And I say all this as for encouragement because it is a, what a blessing it is to come week after week after week and, and when, when David or Larry get up to lead the music, the, the, the room explodes in praise from lives that are committed to worshiping the Lord and are excited to come and join the corporate worship. Well, 
We've considered the nature of thanksgiving. It's an obligation. It's a moral obligation. It's a decision, and it is a lifestyle. Let's look next at the practice of thanksgiving. And we see this in the two sections of the psalm, the practice of thanksgiving. In verses 1 through 3, the first part of the practice of a thanksgiving is to make a universal declaration. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The people of God, which is what's taking place in the psalm and the psalter, the people of God declare the glory of God to all peoples. Make a joyful noise. The declaration of the people of God is make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. We're calling all the earth to shout a shout of of adoration and of acknowledgement that God is God. And so we make a universal declaration. We we could say that this psalm of praise begins with an evangelistic theme. There's an evangelistic theme. Because the Lord reigns over the earth, all the earth must shout out in recognition recognition of the great I am, the self-sustaining God, Yahweh. And and we see an element within this psalm, again, thinking of it as an evangelistic shout. There's a polemic in this first section. In verse 3, know that the Lord, He, He, and He alone is God. All nations cry out to the Lord, but let's make sure we define who the Lord is. The one God, Yahweh. Know, know that He is God and He alone is God. There is only one God. And when we look through the history of Israel, we find repeatedly that God's dealings with Israel, part of of the reason he deals as he does with Israel is so that, that his name will be declared among the nations. There is a God. Yahweh's God is the true God. And you see this happen. You see it happen in in Daniel when Daniel interprets the dreams to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar at the end of chapter 4 acknowledges that there is only one God. Know that the Lord, He is God. In the New Testament, turn to Acts 17. It's actually this very theme that Paul uses to evangelize in the Areopagus. In Acts chapter 17, verse 22, Paul is standing there in the midst of the Areopagus and and follow what he says. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So what is he saying? He's saying, look, here's all of these altars to all of these gods, right? The many gods. And just to cover your bases, you have one to the unknown God in case you forgot one. Now, I'm going to declare to you who that God is, and I'm going to tell you that he is the only God. So, picking up in verse 24, the God, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Are are you hearing the echoes of Psalm 100 in Paul's evangelistic presentation? This is the God with whom you have to do. It's the God who made you and the God who made everything. Verse 26. 
He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we move, we live and move and have our being, even as one of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Verse 29, being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." Where did Paul begin? Know that the Lord, he is God. And in the fullness of the New Testament revelation, he declared that that God, that one God, will hold all men accountable on the basis of what they do with Jesus Christ. a universal declaration. All the earth acknowledge the Lord because He's the only God and you belong to Him. And so as the church, we make this declaration verbally and in the way we live. Turn uh, to one other New Testament passage here, John 17. John 17 We could say that the second statement, serve the Lord with gladness for the church is filled out in the epistles and how we respond to the gospel and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But Jesus in John 17 in his high priestly prayer, as he's praying for those who will believe in his name through the word of his apostles, He prays specifically for what will be the church. And in verse 21, he says, he's praying that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. And is he praying that just so that we'll have a really nice life and, you know, things will go well for us? Is is that why he's praying that? Well, he tells us, so that so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then in verse 23, again, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. We talk a lot about unity in the body, We protect the unity in the body. We seek to protect the unity in the body by the grace of God. Why? Because Christ said that the the unity of the body, the, the harmonious functioning of the body in Christ is a declaration to the world that God is God. Think about Think about the body of all, all of us from different backgrounds, different ages, all, all kinds of variety. And, and, you, and, and as we would talk to one another, and, you, know, you, you kind of think, what do these people have in common? Christ. Christ. He, he is the source of our unity. And so it's accurate as we think about even how we relate to Christ. We come to Christ personally. We repent and believe for the forgiveness of our sins. But it's not just about my personal relationship with Christ. It's about a corporate relationship in Christ with his people. John MacArthur says in Biblical doctrine on page 608 and 609, there is no union with Christ that does not issue in a fellowship with his church. And so what we do is we gather and as we 
fellowship and as we exhort one another, as we live out the one another passages of the New Testament, what are we doing? We're making a universal declaration. Everyone, you, you need to make a joyful noise to the Lord. He is God. He is the one who has made us. And, and as God's people, we are bowing before him. We're submitting our lives to him and we're living in harmony so that you can see the wonder of the God who saved us, the wonder of the God to whom you need to turn. It is a universal declaration. In verses four and five, there's kind of a funneling effect in this psalm. We go from a universal declaration to a unique devotion. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Those who are God's people joyfully come into his presence with singing. We enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. We give thanks to him. Our hearts are full of praise for what he has done and we bless his name. We bless God as the source of our blessings. James says that, that every good thing comes from above, from our Father who is unchanging. And so we bless God as the source of our blessings. We bless God as the one who gives us life out of his very life. There's, a, there's an understanding of what God has done in making us his people and redeeming us now in the fullness of New Testament revelation through the Lord Jesus Christ. We give him thanks. We come in corporate thanksgiving and praise. And isn't it the high point of our, of our week? Isn't it the high point of our lives to gather with God's people, to corporately offer praise, to corporately offer thanksgiving, to be excited about coming together, to entering his presence corporately and offering up praise because this is what eternity is gonna be like. The difference is that in eternity, we won't have sin to deal with. In eternity, we'll never have to leave. It's forever and ever. And so we, while we wait for the Lord to finish his purposes, we maintain a unique, devo- a unique devotion as we gather together. We give him thanks always. We praise him always because he is always Good. We can, you know, we're free again. We're free to stop gathering and we're free to stop giving corporate praise when God stops being good. And so, what a privilege it is, and what a joy it is, just in a in in a pastoral sense, to see people restructuring their lives to prioritize gathering with God's people. You know what a joy it is to see that week after week? To hear how people are making, coming together the main thing of their lives? To see families coming together, burdened to train their children early on what it's like to worship the God of heaven by giving attention to his word like this and praising him across generational lines. Oh, this is exactly what God is calling us to do as his people and acknowledging us or calling us to acknowledge that he is our God. The practice of thanksgiving, we make a universal declaration and we maintain unique devotion. And finally and lastly, we come to the reasons for thanksgiving. The reasons for thanksgiving. Now, there's a great simplicity here. There are two reasons that God gives. Two underlying reasons that in one sense, summarize the entirety of theology, that summarize the entirety of the study of God, but are so simple that they're part of a children's prayer. What are the two reasons to give thanksgiving? God is great and God is good. God is great and God is good. 
Verse 3, know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. The psalmist packs into that passage, that one statement, the fact that God, God made all people. He is great. God sustains all people. God sustains the entire universe so that we can live and move and have our being. He is great. I was astounded going back to the last two weeks of what Andrew preached and the questions that he answered about God's creation. Just the, the, one of the most gripping things in that whole presentation was that outer layer of water that we haven't discovered that maintains the temperature of the entire universe. And I probably oversimplified that and got it wrong. And if I did, ask Andrew to correct me, okay? But that's just, it's mind-boggling. Oh, God is great. God is great. And I want to just read a couple statements that have led to Psalm 100 from these other psalms. Listen. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are his sanctuary. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. God is great. Know that the Lord, he is God. The psalmist, though, ends the psalm on this note. For the Lord is good. The steadfast love of the, uh, his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. God is good. What does that mean, God is good? Well, it's not that God conforms to a standard, an external standard of goodness. No, he is good in his very being. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, no one is good except God is God alone. He is perfectly good in, in his essence and everything that he is, and he is perfectly good in his expression, in his dealings with mankind. Through and through, God is good. And because he is good, he does good. The two statements fill that out. He always acts according to his promises. His steadfast love endures forever. And the fullness of that, the full expression of that revelation is in the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, according to the promises that he made based on his own character. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness, he is firm, he is unchanging, his faithfulness to all generations. My children, you know, are relatively young, but it's getting to that point where I'm thinking about they're not going to be with me forever and ever in my home, I hope. <laughs> but there's a terror to that, right? <gasps> How am I gonna how am I gonna protect them? What am I gonna do? This verse addresses that. God is faithful. And I'm sure my parents felt that way. You know, man's heart is evil from his youth. And I can think about some things that made my parents be terrified about what it would be like when I was on my own. His faithfulness endures to all generations. I don't have to be concerned that God's going to change. He's not. The same God that 
cares for me and you, the same God that cared for my parents and my grandparents and my great-great-grandparents and all the way back to when this psalm was written and all the way back to when mankind was made, His faithfulness endures to all generations. He is good. God is good. God is great and God is good. A church then that gives thanks to God is a church of spirit-filled people declaring His greatness to a dark world, a, a dark world that's filled with miniature sovereigns who think they reign. And our, our declaration is, no, there is one God, it's not you. It's the Lord, and He is good. It's a shout to acknowledge that there are no other deities and that He works according to the stability of His character, and that as you praise God and thank God, you do so out of rest in His goodness. You can thank Him and you can praise Him in the darkest nights because even when everything has changed and life is collapsing, His steadfast love endures forever, His faithfulness to all generations. He is good. And so... Let us, through Christ, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, to acknowledge his name. And do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Father, we thank you for the revelation that you have given to us in your completed word. We thank you for the fullness of revelation in the Lord Jesus Christ, We praise you for the transforming work of redemption to take self-serving little G gods and to cause us to be worshipers of the God of heaven. We rejoice and we give thanks to you today. Strengthen us to go forth in the power of your spirit, to obey you, to love you, and to be lights in the dark world that you have put us in until Christ returns. And we pray it in His name. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.